What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to have a great show for you today. I have with me Dr. Jonathan Kay, who is an associate professor of anesthesiology at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. He practices cardiac anesthesia and and is an expert in echo and all things cardiac and has taken a real interest in a topic we're going to discuss today, perioperative hypersensitivity reactions. So this is something I'm really excited to go over, both from my own learning, and I know a lot of people out there have questions about it. So this gentleman is going to tell us all about it. He goes by JK, and so that is what I will call him at his own request. So JK, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dennis. It's a real privilege and honor to be on the show. Fabulous. So why don't you tell us what exactly is a perioperative hypersensitivity reaction, and how did you get interested in the topic? So uh, the way I got interested in the topic was that my two-year-old was home with my wife and he was having some locks and I got a relatively frantic phone call that he had a rash that was headed upwards north toward his airway. And my wife, the nurse said, I'm not sure what to do. And I said, I'm on my way home, put him in the cold water with some ice and start looking for an antihistamine that we have always available and a pediatric dose. And there I got home and he was better. And we then had him tested. And I learned that allergy testing, skin testing can identify his problems, which were in fact a fish allergy. And in addition, a sesame allergy. And interestingly, sesame is now required to be identified in all products so that there are many things out there that you wouldn't suspect have a taint of sesame. And so now I took an interest in allergy and then I have happened to be in the right place at the wrong time or wrong place at the wrong time with several iconic cases in our institution, including one of a patient who was having a serious repeat sternotomy for a bentol with a pseudoaneurysm who ultimately triggered on three different episodes with three different antigens. Uh, 
And we've uh, used that case as a springboard to talk about a host of things that got my interest in allergy and including working with the allergists here and giving, you know, grand rounds uh, around the country and nationally now on this topic. It's it's become a little bit of a, a niche. Well, that's fabulous. And I'm so glad you're here to help teach us about it. So when we talk about this kind of diagnosis of anaphylaxis. Is that what we mean? Tell us, let's update us on that. What does anaphylaxis mean? Does that encompass everything we're talking about or are there different levels of reaction and, and they're not all called anaphylaxis? Right. So the definition of anaphylaxis is typically the one of an IgE mediated or type one hypersensitivity reaction that involves the release of numerous chemical mediators from our, our friends, the mast cells and basophils, after a re-exposure to an antigen. So we all recognize this mechanism, one of which you have an exposure. You then get the antigens attached to IgE molecules, and then along comes the antigen a second time, and boom, you, you're off, to the, off and running. And specifically, the mast cell, which is, as we study it, is now a very impressive organ for producing a host of mediators, uh, is now the ringleader of the reaction. And as we'll talk about as we go along, it's not the only actor in this drama. There are lots of other ways that you can stimulate mast cells beyond IgE, and it's very important for us as we go along to recognize those other reactions. But that's the definite definition. And um, when we talk about the the um, the whole host of allergy reactions, we have to recognize when the allergist talks about these, they really do segment them into different types, one through four. But we in anesthesia are most involved with the acute IgE anaphylaxis reactions. And, and that's um, the most severe, usually, of all the different subtypes of reactions, immediate and severe. Okay. So type one, immediate, severe, anaphylaxis, that's when we think of the classic kind of crashing patient after, you know, uh, some sort of exposure. Um, and what about the other two, three, and four? I mean, do we need to worry about that? Should we go over those? Sure. Or you think that's not important for us? Well, for, for us, it becomes important because we have to recognize, for instance, in the Stevens-Johnson's reactions, the type type 2s and 3s and 4s, that these are very, very severe reactions. We don't, we don't want to expose our patients to any of those potential uh, epitopes or antigens that the person could, in fact, uh, have, have, a, um, have had uh, um, a relationship with. Um, so that's that's critical for us to, to recognize. Um, and uh, besides the IgE pathway, it's important for us to, to recognize that there uh, has been good research that shows that IgE is the pathway in an in a, in a, in a identified up to 60% of the severe reactions. But importantly, Jed, you can have a direct pathway with something that's called mast cell G receptor protein X2 reflex, which is MRGPX2, it's a big mouthful. But that is a direct acting, goes right to the mast cell and bang, off you go. And in addition, there's a very important IgG and complement type pathway independent of IgE. So that even though, for instance, as we'll talk about, the allergist can't identify the exact perp or culprit in our case, there are other ways to get to the same reaction. It's in fact 
why we've abandoned the term anaphylactoid, which was initially used to describe non-IgE mediated reactions, but in fact, all roads lead to the mast cell so that the, the, w, the World Health Organization uh, gave up on anaphylactoid several years ago and says everything is really anaphylaxis independent, whether it's IgE mediated, IgG with complement versus the direct ones with the, the MRGPRX2. Um, so, so anything that causes mast cell degranulation is going to count as anaphylaxis, no longer yes. mattering whether it goes through IgE or not. Yes, and importantly, we've identified it's not just the mast cells because now the basophils have got into the act and even some of the um, uh, dendrite cells. Dendrite cells can be activated, especially in chronic conditions like parasitosis and in asthma. And so those cells that are stimulated go to the T cells and say, let's make some B cells. And the B cells say, let's stimulate a whole host of other um, activity, uh, other uh, cells, particularly the, the platelets, basophils, neutrophils. They're all now in the act producing chronic and acute severe reactions. Okay. So let's say I induce a patient for anesthesia. I give a slug of propofol, some fentanyl, and their blood pressure drops. Okay, so how do I know if that's just, hey, I just gave a big dose of a vasodilator like propofol or if it's anaphylaxis? Exactly. So this brings the specific question of what can masquerade as anaphylaxis. And there are very good ways of thinking through this and making the diagnosis and grading anaphylaxis. Specifically, if we have a patient who just got an overdose of anesthetic, which we do on a daily basis, or for instance, the other two findings are tachycardia and bronchospasm that lead to the diagnosis of anaphylaxis and that are the three key findings, hypotension, bronchospasm, and tachycardia are our three cardinal features, but we produce those reasonably every day. For instance, mechanical causes, if I put the tube down the right main stem, boom, bronchospasm, that's not anaphylaxis, but we have to differentiate that from anything that can cause severe bronchospasm, like the antibiotic that you gave three minutes beforehand that could have stimulated the patient and started the patient on the road to anaphylaxis. So exactly right. To distinguish the two requires us to make a diagnosis. The differentials uh, are presented um, in a whole bunch of very good articles, and I will talk about those at the end. But the mechanical causes, simply the uh, anesthesia circuit being put in backwards, which we've done. Patients, for instance, have a tension pneumo or pulmonary embolus or venous air embolus can produce very severe um, complications that are respiratory and cardiovascular problems that can look and, and smell and taste just like anaphylaxis, but have to be teased out. Uh, other causes will include patients who have mastocytosis, a very rare problem, or patients with alpha tryptosemia. These are uncommon things that can produce severe, severe changes that are not exactly anaphylaxis, but in fact, mast cell mediated uh, even a patient, for instance, who's septic, who's very hypotensive and tachycardic, who happens to run into an antibiotic that uh, causes severe uh, relationships of, that look just like anaphylaxis. So to make the diagnosis, besides just the three big findings, we rely upon several specific follow-up 
um, things that we should do. The one that is most useful probably is a serum tryptase. And serum tryptase is the hallmark of the mast cells. Um, that's its fingerprint when it's stimulated to produce anaphylaxis. And it's worth taking a minute to talk about getting the right tube in the right place at the right time. So the right tube in our case is a, is a gold top tube that we send, but um, and we actually are working on getting an anaphylaxis type kit that allows us to have a laminated um, little display that says what tube, where, and when, and uh, also uh, an allergy referral form. So specifically, we want a trip taste joint gotten between 30 minutes and up to two to four hours after the reaction because the, the tryptase starts to rise and it starts to maximize about 30 minutes to uh, an hour or two. So you don't need to get it instantly. You have a little bit of time before that tryptase starts to bump up. Critically, as we've talked about, you should get another value at 24 hours because, for instance, in the rare cases of mastocytosis, the patient can have a chronically high tryptase level. In alpha tryptosemia, similarly, they can have a high level. And very importantly, even if the tryptase level doesn't go over the usual and customary value of 9 to 11 nanograms per mil, even if it's not a very high level, if you look at the baseline level that you get at the time you send it and the 24 hours, there's a crisp relationship so that even if it doesn't go above the level that we say, oh, this is clearly a trip taste bump with anaphylaxis, if the relative increase, relative increase is two times that value plus 1.2, not important, but that bump, relatively speaking, still implies an anaphylaxis reaction, even though it didn't reach the 11 value. Levels greater than 33 are almost always anaphylaxis, just as, a, as an aside. And you should look at your own um, uh, laboratory's evaluation, too. So that's really good to know. So if you, for example, sent a trip, you have a patient, they, they seem to be having anaphylaxis, you send a trip taste at an hour after the reaction, it comes back at nine. And then 24 hours later, you get one that's two, then that actually is suggestive of yes, anaphylaxis. Yes, exactly right. Yes, that formula helps us exactly right. And then we also, I think, should get into the issue of grading the anaphylaxis because there's initially uh, there's a there's a very um, useful grading system that 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 we we use that that is from um, originally from Ring and and Mesmer and their system is still useful it goes way back to 1977 the grade one is a skin and mucosal sign with erythema and urticaria and importantly Jed as you know in our world sometimes we don't have any access to the skin or mucosa. So the signs and symptoms that are grade one are totally missed until you restore perfusion, take off the drapes, boom, there's the rash. Um, and we interestingly had a case very similar uh, to, to uh, one of the famous cases, but uh, with methylene, it was uh, isosulfine blue given for a patient having breast surgery. And um, the patient triggered and was ready to go on ECMO when we made the diagnosis and figured it out. And then when the drapes came off, it was very obvious hmm. skin manifestations. So that's grade one. Grade two is moderate multi-organ involvement with skin mucosal signs with or without hypotension, tachycardia, and moderate 
bronchospasm or GI symptoms. And grade three is severe, life-threatening mono or multi-organ involvement with severe hypotension, tachycardia, bradycardia, the works, severe bronchospasm, mucosal signs and symptoms, and GI symptoms. And grade four is cardiac respiratory arrest. Grade five is death. So we, by grading it, we then look at how do we treat it. And if you want to go there next, it's important because the, the treatment now is sort of um, uh, a function of, of the grade. For instance, uh, in grades one, mod modest doses of epinephrine may or may not be needed, but certainly they're reasonable. Grade two, we're going to be giving anywhere between 20 to 50, 20 to 50 mics IV. In grade three, we're giving 100 to 500 mics every few minutes. And then if it's unresponsive to those things, we'll go on to what we do in the desperate situations. Importantly, as far as grading is concerned, that original 1977 paradigm has been revised a little bit to simplify it to an ABC, where A is moderate, B is life-threatening, and C is cardiac arrest. And then importantly, the entire uh, British Journal of Anesthesia in 2019 has a two-volume, uh, has two, two um, issues devoted to perioperative allergic reactions. And I recommend it because they take a different tack. They say, you know, let's look at four different types of signs that would help us make the diagnosis. And they look at the dermatologic manifestations, respiratory signs, the circulatory effects and the timing, and they assign a given grade to each of these. For instance, the timing of the reaction, if you are within a few minutes, within five minutes, you get a value of seven. If, you're, if it takes you 60 minutes or so to trigger, that's down to a two. And then they add all these up for the four different types of signs, specifically respiratory, dermatologic, and circulatory, they get a number. And that's a very complex, more nuanced way of grading, but I, I don't think it's going to be adopted by the, those of us who are just given propofol and have hypotension, but it certainly makes you think that at least you should think about there's a, there's a real bandwidth of signs and symptoms with everything we do in anaphylaxis with those four things, dermatologic, respiratory, circulatory, and timing. If you start adding up all of those factors, you start to get a picture. This is indeed the real deal. This is anaphylaxis. Yeah, great. All right. So let me go back for a minute to the diagnosis. Uh, so we talked about triptase. Is there anything else, any other labs or anything else we should right. be sending to help us make this diagnosis? Importantly, histamine is evanescent and won't help you. So besides the, the triptase, there is very little until you send the patient off to the allergist. And I think it's worth saying that it's not necessarily a foolproof uh, diagnosis if you send the patient to the allergist and the results are equivocal because in about 40% of patients, you do not identify the culprit even with an allergist who's knowledgeable in the area and knows our business in terms of what drugs we give. Importantly, there's not a lot else we can do in in fact, it's one of the big gaps in our understanding of anaphylaxis and allergic reactions that we don't have an absolute foolproof 100% way of saying this is anaphylaxis. It would be nice, but we're often left with patients who come back who have no specific culprit or perp 
diagnosis. And that's really a challenge. Um, when it comes to the timing of the reaction, it's it's kind of useful because even though you um, don't have an immediate reaction, for instance, if the patient has been exposed to mucosal or skin epitopes or antigens like chlorhexidine, so you have a patient, as was our case, our first case, that was the one that triggered with three things, came in for his bentol, and he had had a chlorhexidine wash, as we all often do, uh, the night before and the day of, everybody gets chlorhexidine to wash, and he comes in, he's itching. He's scratching everywhere. He's, oh, geez, this is really uncomfortable. I'm really kind of itchy. So we gave him some Benadryl, and we take him to the operating room, and we look at him, and he's the rash is better, and the itching is gone. He's doing fine. And then we, of course, put a chlorhexidine patch on the guy, on his art line. And we put a chlorhexidine patch on his IJ. And we think, oh, in retrospect, that was not a good idea. And then we, so there he is getting a chlorhexidine skin prep because we hadn't figured out that he shouldn't get any chlorhexidine anymore, any triggers. And so those signs and symptoms that occur, especially belatedly, because he didn't have anything going on until the chlorhexidine had a chance to soak in. So as while we're actually putting his right IJ in, that I noticed his blood pressure and pulse were going the wrong direction. His pulse was going down despite all the right drugs. He's tachycardic. And I'm thinking, this guy shouldn't be tachycardic, what we give him. And then we go ahead and we put the echo in. He's very hyperdynamic. So there are lots of things that point in the direction. But the foolproof way of getting a diagnosis is one of the great um, mysteries and, and problems with this whole concept of what is anaphylaxis and what isn't anaphylaxis. Yeah. So tryptase is, a, is really the only thing you can send. And you're putting that together with kind of the various signs that might point you towards anaphylaxis. And then, you know, but the trip dates, of course, you're not getting back in the moment. So that's going to come down, the, down later. Yes. Now, as far as treatment goes, you talked about the different doses of epinephrine. I think that's really helpful to give people that idea of kind of how much epinephrine you should think you may need, depending on the severity. What about other things? Should we be giving steroids? Should we be giving Benadryl? Should we be giving other antihistamines? Very, very good questions, Jed. So the pediatric allergists, the adult allergists have looked at this and have now opined in their guidelines, there is no benefit of steroids or antihistamines given acutely or even prophylactically, with the exception of radio contrast agents, no evidence that they make a big difference to the outcome or to the course of the anaphylaxis but they have not been shown to have any harm. And traditionally, as you're suggesting, we always pop in antihistamines and steroids. Oh, yeah, let's give the antihistamines. Let's give the but it's not going to make a difference. It's not going to rescue the patient. It may delay, perhaps, the uh, uh, occurrence of a biphasic reaction, which is about 15 to 20% of patients actually will uh, get better, and then they recrudesce. And that's a very important concept because patients who have recrudescence or biphasic reactions can occur up to 24 hours later. The recommendation is probably to watch these people closely for at least four to six hours, even in the emergency room literature. So, yes, we really have to be very vigilant about what we should do for that period of time and uh, consider uh treating them with additional epinephrine or whatever it takes. Importantly, if the patient is epinephrine non-responsive, 
we move on to administration of high doses of fluids. We're talking about in a 70 kilogram patient, we're looking at two to three liters at least, 50 to 70 milligrams cc's per kilogram in a child. And the, the one of the commonest errors in anaphylaxis is not to give adequate volume. And this is repeatedly shown in our, in our literature that if you don't resuscitate the patient with volume who's hyperdynamic and vasodilated from all of the mast cell mediators, you're going to not be able to treat the patient effectively. Also, very important, patients on beta blockade, patients who are, who are on beta blockade especially may benefit from glucagon as, an, as, a, uh, part, as a treatment strategy. Additionally, if the patient is unresponsive to epi, and that does occur, vasopressin, norepinephrine, glucagon, and of course, at the end of the day, if you have access to ECMO, that is the end-all and be-all if the patient is totally unresponsive. And in fact, we had a phenomenal case. The lady who got um, reaction from her, uh, the contrast isosulfane blue, she had, she uh, triggered as they were, as they're actually getting ready to, to do the surgery. They were draped and prepped. She had gotten the isosulfane blue which is given subcutaneously 20 minutes beforehand, complicated by the fact that she also had gotten blocks for her uh, surgical uh, block for her breast surgery. So perhaps the last was in the, was in the mix. And there we have a patient who's getting hypotensive and tachycardic. And what's interesting was that she was done in the ambulatory surgery center. And so they called us as she's resting and getting CPR. And they said, we need her to potentially be on ECMO because we put the echo in and her heart looked terrible. So we said, call the ECMO team. The ECMO team couldn't find the ambulatory surgery center because we're on the second floor. And they're wandering around the hospital trying to find us. Bottom line is by the time they got to us, we had treated the patient with all the things that we talked about as secondary treatment, vasopressin, norepinephrine, glucagon, she also got steroids and benetrol, and volume, volume, volume. And she started to respond. She had severe right ventricular dysfunction. We ended up putting milrinone down the end of the tracheal tube to rescue the right ventricle. So by the time the ECMO shows up an hour and 15 minutes later, he's better. And, and she did fine. Wow, that's quite a case. So presumably, if you did need to put someone on ECMO, it wouldn't be for long, right? It's just a matter of getting them over that hump until yes. the mediators. And and what, I guess at some point, uh, whatever the mast cells have degranulated are going to clear from the system. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? 
outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, and we're back with Dr. J.K., Yes. And the, the interesting thing is that uh, people have uh, sort of um, puzzled over why it is that patients re-trigger or have the biphasic response because they get better. And what happens is you sort of punch the mast cells back into behavior with the epinephrine and all the other things that you can give. But what happens is those mediators start to decline. And then there are, there are areas of the body that are not as well perfused. And as they get perfused, then those mediators start to recur. They start to come back into the, into the, into, onto the theater and onto the stage and say, okay, you have fooled me once, can't fool me twice. And so that's the, that's the reason that biphasic reactions uh, can occur. Um, and and, and uh, that's, that's, that's an important uh, recommendation that we keep a very close uh, vigilance on these people for the secondary reactions because they can trigger again, especially if they have hidden, um, if the isosulfane blue, for instance, isn't totally absorbed and it keeps on being absorbed, that's the case that will re-trigger. Yeah. And so you mentioned that recrudescence can happen up to 24 hours out. So do we need to watch them for 24 hours in the ICU? Good question. Good question. The recommendation is at least six hours without a trigger and then very close vigilance for being able to make sure that you're able to to see what's going on with the patient for at least 24 hours. So you can't put all these people in the ICU. The The ED literature says six to eight hours is certainly reasonable, but they should be in a place where they can have people monitor them, much like after any other anesthetic. There's, a, you know, you don't want to have people driving. You want to be able to watch these people or have someone watching them for a recrudescence. Um, but uh, the exact observation period is one of the hula hoops of the literature. It's not exactly clear that six to eight hours is enough. Some would recommend a little longer, but certainly it happened triggers at 24 hours that brought the patient back. Okay. So let's say we have a patient, they have an anaphylactic reaction, we get them through it. Now they're ready to go. And we're going to say, listen, you should see an allergist. What information do we need them to know to take to their allergist? And what is the timing? When should they see the allergist? And what kind of information does the allergist need? Great questions. So importantly, uh, in the program notes, we have a document from the Australians Allergy Consortium, which is a detailed very carefully done way of communicating with the allergist. And in, in, in short, everything that patient has touched or has touched the patient for an hour or two prior to the reaction to 24 hours later has to be evaluated. And the things that we have to look at are all on the anesthesia record, except the ones that aren't. For instance, the chlorhexidine patch that we put on, or more importantly, what the surgeon sticks in to get 
uh, hemostasis, all those gels and tissues and things that are not as common but still could be allergens have to be uh, 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 charted and sent on to the allergist. That's very important because we miss a lot of the things that we think are, oh, that can be an allergy, but all the things that the patient touches or has touched the patient have to be included. The anesthesia record is a good place to start. You don't want to simply call the allergist up on the phone. Hey, hey, guys, I think this is probably rockeronium. Let's let's uh, you know test this patient for rock. Um, so the allergist has a duty, and we have the duty to give an entire comprehensive evaluation with all, all the things that the patient was exposed to, bar none for the first hour or two prior, and then for the first 24 hours that the patient may have may have been triggered by. And okay. it's surprising, it's surprising uh, what's on that form, uh, Jed. It's really very, very useful. It's very comprehensive. Yeah, that's great. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes, as you said. Now, I'll say I got, I had a patient once who had seen an allergist and they had the report in the chart. And I looked at this thing and I could not make hide nor hair of it. I mean, I couldn't understand <laughs> it. Now, luckily... A colleague has a wife who's an allergist, so I called her, and I and she helped me understand it. But what what are we going to get from the test results, and and how can we interpret what we get back from the allergist? Very good. So I first the first question always is when should the allergist see the patient? Because here we are, we're desperately uh, uh, anxious to take care of my Bentol patient, and we just did CPR, and the surgeon looks at us and says, you know. I think you could have cracked the pseudoaneurysm. We need to get this guy back on the schedule. How about like next Tuesday? Actually, it's two weeks. We need to get him back on the schedule. So <laughs> we do a CT to rule out the bentol that, is, uh, that he's not bleeding. And then we brought him back <laughs> two weeks later without an allergy uh, full diagnostic testing. And he triggers again. So the surgeon looks up, and if the second time we saw this guy, I almost killed him, he says, I think we better test this guy. So we wait, average time is four to six weeks. Well, why did we wait four to six weeks? Because the allergist is too busy? No, no, no. It's not because the allergist is too busy. It's because the mast cells have done their thing. They're completely depleted of their mediators. The basophils have gone out to lunch. They're done. So we wait until it's a restoration of those little cytokines and mediators to bring the patient back because otherwise we're going to get false negatives. So the recommendation by the allergist and so forth is four to six weeks. It's not because they, they don't want to work. It's because it takes time for them to replete. Importantly, however, there is a caveat. If you got to go ahead, you really need to do this patient within a week or two, and you test the patient, and they're positive to a single agent, well, it's tempting to say, yeah, it was rock. Okay, we're gonna not we're gonna avoid rock today. We're not gonna give rock aronium and you can proceed. That's reasonable on the level of risk benefit, but you have to kind of you know consider is it worth doing this guy's allergy testing twice because we'll do it at a week or two, and then if it's negative, we gotta bring it back and figure out at six weeks. What was your and the allergists uh, obviously come in different flavors. Those who have seen our drugs and those who haven't seen our drugs. Importantly, what they do for usual and customary is skin testing, and the skin testing is very very useful. Uh, and uh, as I was able to watch my son has his, has have his skin test, it's pretty obvious which agents are. Are the ones they give a control with histamine to make sure they can the, the patient has can flare 
and you can see what a normal histamine does. And then you see what happens with the various allergens and a greater than three millimeters um, is, is going to be positive and a raise, et cetera. So they will give you a report that says this is clearly positive. And if they can't get a skin test positive, but they suspect clearly suspect that they have an allergen that is the answer, they'll do intradermal testing. So the intradermal testing is a secondary testing if the, if the skin testing is negative, but they may, may report, I can't find it. The patient was totally negative. And they may suggest doing what's called specific IgE testing. Well, specific IgE testing is a very useful way of identifying those things that the patient's serum is going to be reactive to that is specific. Latex, penicillin, chlorhexidine are among the things that are very, very easy to use as a specific in vitro testing that will allow you to say this person really triggers. It may not be specific, but it's sensitive enough to say he's not going to trigger to, to this, this or the other thing. Importantly, it's not necessary that the patient didn't trigger the first three times you had exposure. And it has to do with the way the antigens and the, the IgE finally kind of formulate up and whether the patient has one of the IgG or, or complement ones or direct acting can make this a very difficult and it's an exciting field because there's a really good article on what are the gaps in diagnosis and treatment. And they point out that we can miss yeah. You just don't know all there is to know about allergy. Now, does skin testing, will skin testing be positive even if it's not IgE-mediated, if it's one of these other pathways? No, no. Okay. Skin testing is skin testing is the body's IgE uh, fingerprint. So that's only going to tell us about IgE. I assume yes. that, is that the most common form? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So yes. So if you look at all the allergens and all the allergists, they're going to say skin testing, we skin tested this patient to propofol, He's triggered. He's we're skin test this patient for hexidine. No question. We even did latex and his and all the other ones that were negative. So we know it's not a false positive. We got the answer. We got this. This is the answer. You're pretty sure this is going to be a, you know, we and you've got to avoid. Importantly, if you do test for neuromuscular blockade uh, agents, and we do actually have patients who are skin tested because that's obviously a little bit of a problem because skin testing with these drugs is, is not a great idea. In a, in a, it, but if you do get a positive skin test with, say, rock, they do cross-react. Many of the neuromuscular blockade uh, agents do cross-react. So we don't want to use ones that are cross-reacting with rock because many of them cross-react. So you want to get a negative reaction for our NMBAs. They will test all of them. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I would imagine rock and VEC are probably likely to cross-react, whereas maybe cisatricurium less likely. Exactly. And okay. in fact, our, this, the patient, the classic patient of ours, and he, he's given permission to talk about him, it was propofol, cis, and chlorhexidine. Really? Yeah. The last time we put him to sleep, we said, oh, we'll use methadone. And we just, you know, the resident said, I need to paralyze him. Okay, let's use cis. Use cisatricurium. Bang. Off he went. Wow. Wow. Amazing. So let's say you have a patient come back to you after having gone for testing and their testing was inconclusive. They didn't find anything, but you know, they had an anaphylactic reaction the last time they came to you. What are you going to do with that? Yeah, this is very important because this is a patient who obviously, if you can use regional anesthesia, use regional anesthesia. You're going to use uh, nothing that contains latex or chlorhexidine. You're not going to use anything that is a common 
commonly affect uh, that commonly causes a problem. And so you're going to try to avoid any of the usual suspects, the chlorhexidine, the latex, the penicillin, and you're going to avoid perhaps uh, as the as the as the as the third and, and fourth most common things, the the isosulfine blue dye. Uh, so you're going to do this patient in a way that you think is positively safe. You can get away with a regional anesthetic and you will end up, there's no question you're going to be treating this patient with, with the antihistamines and the steroids only because it makes everybody feel better, not because it's going to prevent the, prevent the reaction. So you're not going to prevent it. It may have a slower fuse burning and it may be a little less violent initially, but they still will trigger. And so you, you have no guarantee uh, that by giving the steroids and the antihistamines that you've obviated the reaction. But you will have a good, a good shot. And most importantly, you have to be prepared to treat their anaphylaxis. You're gonna have you're gonna have the triptase cart ready, the triptase uh, kit ready to go. You're gonna in many places will say, hey, let's do a baseline triptase just in case he triggers. Mm. And, and so, and they're also going to be be, be uh, advised to to be ready to re- rescue the patient. The med box with the epinephrine, vasopressin, norepinephrine, and everything else, and the and the glucagon, very close in hand. So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, vigilance and for and and uh, preparedness are are the other watchwords. Absolutely. Would you ever consider starting a low dose epinephrine infusion in a patient like that, like pre preemptively? Very good question. I, I think that would probably be up to how how gutsy you feel. Uh, in our case, we had the epinephrine in line. The, okay, the third ready time. to go. It's in line, ready to go, and dilute uh, dilute epinephrine concentrations ready to go. What's interesting is that some of the literature suggests in, in patients where you're having the uh, the anaphylaxis anaphylaxis kit having dilute epinephrine, especially for the pediatric cases. Having dilute epinephrine in the kit already drawn up as 10 mics, 50 mics, 100 mic syringes, so you're not having to sit around taking our 1,000 mic per cc epi and having to dilute it or having to give tenth of a cc or tiny amounts. If you have that ready to go, that makes some sense. But I think prophylaxis is probably, uh, you know, not 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 necessary. But certainly, it crosses your mind to have it in line, ready to go, drawn up, with everybody in the room aware this is a, this might be a little bit of a ticking bomb. Yep, that sounds right. So, when you think about uh, you know allergies and, and potential anaphylaxis, we we think a lot about the patient who comes in, as so many do, with a report of an anaphylactic reaction to penicillin. Right? We get this all the time. I had I, I'm allergic to penicillin. You either hear, they'll say, well, when I was a kid, they told me my throat closed up or something like that, right? When I, so yes. do we um, do we need to, what do we need to do about that? Do, does that mean they can't get any, uh, can they get ANSAF? What, is, what do we know about that? So this is a common daily annoyance. 20 to 30% of patients come to us with the penicillin allergy label on their chart. And um, it's interesting if you ask the patient, well, what did happen? They They say, oh, Actually, I didn't have it. My mother was allergic. And she said, never let them give you anything that I'm allergic to. Three important points. First, at 10 years, 85 to 90% of patients who even triggered an anaphylaxis outgrow or actually lose the IgE reaction. So you can safely, in fact, give them penicillin. It's hard for you to know that until you test them. But number one. 
Number two, it is uh, absolutely safe to give those patients a cephalosporin that doesn't share the R1 side chain. And importantly, in our in our show notes, there's a very good article on that. Thirdly, as, last yesterday, the the um, uh, um, journal Allergy came out with recommendations to delabel patients with penicillin allergies. And now Northwestern has a very good program, and many places have adopted the program to allow you to delabel a patient. They come in, they have a very effective uh, referral base. Uh, um, questionnaire, and then they actually give them PO, amox, PO ampicillin amoxicillin in graded amounts, which can actually make the diagnosis very, very readily of are they allergic to penicillins in a safe way. And so delabeling is now very popular and very appropriate. In fact, there's a SNAP talk that uh, David Hepner and Alice Sessler gave to the ASA in 22, and they're giving again this year, that goes through exactly this question. The penicillin allergic patient in a SNAP talk, they talk about how to test them, who to test, how it's done, how to set up the whole schmear so they have exactly what kind of clinic, who should be referred, how you've set up the clinic, what nurses you need, what residents, what fellows, whatever, and and it's uh, the Northwestern people have done it. And there's actually in Canada a whole um, one of the one of the places in Canada has uh, a website that allows people who are penicillin allergic to type in and say, would you like to be delabeled, you know, beat the label. And they actually bring these people in uh, and, and test them. And it's pretty been a pretty effective way of getting rid of the allergies. Once you have a penicillin allergy on the chart, it's like a tooth extraction. It's going to take a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. But you know, we it. recently just, I think yesterday or the day before we had a talk by our, um, Uh, kind of antibiotic stewardship folks. And they said the new rule here, and it's in line with what you just said, is that uh, even if a patient has had an anaphylactic reaction to penicillin, we don't, um, we don't stop giving them ANSEF, uh, which is our, our um, preoperative antibiotic of choice. Um, So that's a new thing. We used to say that if it was a non-anaphylactic reaction, we would go ahead and give the ANSEP. But if they had an anaphylactic reaction to penicillin, then we didn't. And now the new rule is it doesn't matter. Even if it was anaphylaxis, we don't stop. Right, exactly. And the reason for that is compelling is the incidence of superinfection, length of stay, and um, C. diff uh, is much higher if you use Vanco or Cipro or something that is not a simple cephalosporin. So it is absolutely um, uh, understood and is clear that a a patient should receive the appropriate not having R1 side chain of penicillin that goes with treating a patient who needs prophylaxis for, for surgery. Yep. Fabulous. All right. So what about the future? What are the gaps in knowledge around the diagnosis and management of these hypersensitivity reactions that we're hoping to fill in the years to come? So this was uh, recently reviewed and we'll put it in the show notes. Fascinating. If, if not everybody takes their EpiPens with, with them. You're going out to the drugstore and you think, oh, I don't need, I'm, I'm going, I'm just going to go get a loaf of bread or go to the supermarket. I'm, I don't need my EpiPen. And we always give two EpiPens to people. Not a very, not necessary. Very, very rarely do you need a second, second injection. The diagnosis, as we've talked about, is a little bit muzzy at times. We don't have a crisp 
uniform international diagnostic standard. For example, that British Journal of, of Anesthesia article gives you this complex way of looking at it. We're talking about a triptase here, but it's not foolproof. And so we really need a better mousetrap here to actually make the diagnosis and the treatment, although there's recommendations, those recommendations of graded responses and graded epinephrine are not are not retrospectively double-blind shown to be absolutely what we should do. That's one gap. And then how can we identify patients in advance? What genetics or what things can we do to say this patient is clearly going to be a reactor? And then the big question is, is there anything we can do in vitro that can identify patients uh, as we get more sophisticated with our AI and genetics to say we can do the testing? We can test these people like blood banking. We can test against the blood type. We can test against the five biggies and say, this patient is not going to react. We know that. And so those are the things that I think are sort of, sort of the, the future, the future of, of, of allergy. And, and, and it's, uh, it's also, I think, important to get delabeling programs that are up and running because it's a very niche thing right now. It's not everywhere. Yeah, fabulous. All right, JK, what a great group of, of points we've covered that are just so useful. Anything we didn't cover that you think we should hit on before we move on? Uh, I think um, that covers it very well. Um, what to do with the patient who's coming back. We talked about um, what allergy testing can do. And I think uh, these patients, when they're, when they're coming back, represent big problems. The epidemiology is also genetic dependent. We should talk briefly about the fact that in the UK and United States, it's antibiotics, whereas in other parts of the world, it's the neuromuscular blocking agents. And there's a fascinating story from Norway where they had a quaternary ammonium um, cough syrup that has almost the identical chemistry as rocuronium. And when they introduced this cough syrup, the incidence of anaphylaxis went skyrocketing. Hmm. Somebody made the connection. They got rid of the cough syrup, anaphylaxis in Norway, all the way down. So that was fascinating. Yeah. So in different parts of the world, different things will trigger. And then that grades up the, the whole thing about the, the, the genetics. So I think that that's an important lesson for us to learn. Um, but that's, I think, I think we covered a lot, a lot of the main points. Uh, I'd have to say that this is a, uh, uh, other one is the contrast agents in vancomycin. Um, and so um, we know that vancomycin comes in two flavors. It comes as the red man syndrome, which is always histamine, give it slowly. And we talked about contrast. Contrast, fascinatingly, that um, comes uh, with a very common cause um, which is modest urticaria and hypotension, and those are uh, not severe and can be obviated with Benadryl and steroids. And then we have a secondary reaction, which is very, very severe, and those are anaphylaxis. So we have to be very cautious about reintroducing a contrast agent for someone who just had it two weeks ago, had a mild reaction. That patient, beware. Interesting. Okay, so those, it, those are the main ones. Their their initial mild reaction could be just the first stage. And then when they have it again, it could be a severe anaphylactic reaction. Yes, they will trigger. They'll be IgE. Okay, great. Well, let's move on to the part of the show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something you would recommend the audience check out? Yes, I, I talked to Jeb before we started. This is this is a, uh, I am not paid by these guys at all. I just happened to stumble upon it. But there is a a very very good YouTube, free YouTube offerings from a, from a, a uh, uh, ninja N-I-N-G-A, 
NERD, N-E-R-D. And these are lectures that are whiteboard lectures given by uh, uh, two or three individuals. And they are crystal clear ways of looking at things like hemostasis or anticoagulation, um, anemia, every the very uh, things that we, we don't really keep on the tip of our brains to remember that are that are demonstrated extremely clearly and in a way that's easier to remember. He's got, they have some good mnemonic tricks for all the things and the pictures that he has are placed on this whiteboard and you take a screenshot of the whiteboard and you've got something you can put on your phone and you can say, oh, that, that's what this particular DOAC does. That's what this, oh, that's what the prostaglandins do here. Oh, yeah, factor eight. Yeah, now I know OVB, my will ran. So that's where this factor is. And so it's, it's really, I think, uh, uh, a very, very uh, useful YouTube. Uh, uh, and the, the ones that I, I pulled off the internet for like PFTs and things that are kind of hard to remember are crystal clear and, very, and free. Fabulous. Thank you for that recommendation. That sounds great. Um, I'm going to recommend the newest season of the Netflix show, The Crown, which is the season that tackles the death of uh, Princess Diana. And it's really interesting. It, it actually starts with her death and then it goes back in time and kind of reviews uh, the events leading up to it. And as you know, someone who grew up with that as something that happened, right, I, it ha I remember it as a kid when it happened. And so it's really interesting to see the history around it that they include in the show. So I recommend all, actually, we've enjoyed all the episodes, all the different seasons of The Crown, but this most recent one uh, is also fabulous. So I recommend checking it out. Thank you very much. And the, the person who plays Diana is is uncannily looking like her. It's, it's really, oh my. <laughs> it is uncanny. Such an amazing likeness. Yeah, it's amazing they found an actress to, that looks so much like her. Well, JK, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great. My pleasure, Jen. It's been a real privilege and an honor. And thank you again for letting me come on. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.